In the Seance Room presents A Haunted Island by Algernon Blackwood Part 2 Read by Mark Carter Wall There was a faint sound of rattling at the brass knob and the door was pushed open a couple of inches. A pause of a few seconds and it was pushed open still further. Without a sound of footsteps that was appreciable to my ears, the two figures glided into the room, and the man behind gently closed the door after him. They were alone with me between the four walls. Could they see me standing there so still and straight in my corner? Had they perhaps already seen me? My blood surged and sang like the roll of drums in an orchestra, and though I did my best to suppress my breathing, it sounded like the rushing of wind through a pneumatic tube. My suspense as to the next move was soon at an end, only, however, to give place to a new and keener alarm. The men had hitherto exchanged no words and no signs, but there were general indications of a movement across the room, and whichever way they went, they would have to pass round the table. If they came my way, they would have to pass within six inches of my person. While I was considering this very disagreeable possibility, I perceived that the smaller Indian, smaller by comparison, suddenly raised his arm and pointed to the ceiling. The other fellow raised his head and followed the direction of his companion's arm. I began to understand at last. They were going upstairs and the room directly overhead to which they pointed had been until this night my bedroom. It was the room in which I had experienced that very morning so strange a sensation of fear, and but for which I should then have been lying asleep in the narrow bed against the window. The Indians then began to move silently around the room. They were going upstairs, and they were coming round my side of the table. So stealthily were their movements that, but for the abnormally sensitive state of the nerves, I should never have heard them. As it was, their cat-like tread was distinctly audible. Like two monstrous black cats, they came round the table toward me, and for the first time I perceived that the smaller of the two dragged something along the floor behind him. As it trailed along over the floor with a soft, sweeping sound, I somehow got the impression that it was a large dead thing with outstretched wings or a large spreading cedar branch. Whatever it was, I was unable to see it, even in outline, and I was too terrified, even had I possessed the power over my muscles to move my neck forward in the effort to determine its nature. Nearer and nearer they came. The leader rested a giant hand upon the table as he moved. My lips were glued together and the air seemed to burn in my nostrils. I tried to close my eyes so that I might not see as they passed me, but my eyelids had stiffened and refused to obey. Would they never get by me? Sensation seemed also to have left my legs, and it was as if I was standing on mere supports of wood or stone. Worse still... I was conscious that I was losing the power of balance, the power to stand upright, or even to lean backwards against the wall. Some force was drawing me forward, 
and a dizzy terror seized me that I should lose my balance and topple forward against the Indians just as they were in the act of passing me. Even moments drawn out into hours must come to an end sometime, and almost before I knew it, the figures had passed me and had their feet upon the lower step of the stairs leading to the upper bedrooms. They could not have been six inches between us, and yet I was conscious only of a current of cold air that followed them. They had not touched me, and I was convinced that they had not seen me. Even the trailing thing on the floor behind them had not touched my feet, as I had dreaded it would, and on such an occasion as this, I was grateful even for the smallest mercies. The absence of the Indians from my immediate neighbourhood brought little sense of relief. I stood shivering and shuddering in my corner, and, beyond being able to breathe more freely, I felt no less uncomfortable. Also, I was aware that a certain light, which without apparent source or rays had enabled me to follow their every gesture and movement, had gone out of the room with their departure. An unnatural darkness now filled the room and pervaded its every corner, so that I could barely make out the positions of the windows and the glass doors. As I said before, my condition was evidently an abnormal one. The capacity for feeling surprise seemed, as in dreams, to be wholly absent. My senses recorded with unusual accuracy every smallest occurrence, but I was able to draw only the simplest deductions. The Indians soon reached the top of the stairs, and there they halted for a moment. I had not the faintest clue as to their next movement, they appeared to hesitate. They were listening attentively. Then I heard one of them, who, by the weight of his soft tread, must have been the giant, cross the narrow corridor and enter the room directly overhead, my own little bedroom. But for the insistence of that unaccountable dread that I had experienced there in the morning, I should at that very moment have been lying in the bed with the big Indian in the room standing beside me. For the space of a hundred seconds there was silence, such as might have existed before the birth of sound. It was followed by a long, quivering shriek of terror, which rang out into the night and ended in a short gulp before it had run its full course. At the same moment the other Indian left his place at the head of the stairs and joined his companion in the bedroom. I heard the thing trailing behind him along the floor. A thud followed, as of something heavy falling, and then all became as still and silent as before. It was at this point that the atmosphere, surcharged all day with the electricity of a fierce storm, found relief in a dancing flash of brilliant lightning, simultaneously with a crash of loudest thunder. For five seconds, every article in the room was visible to me with amazing distinctness, and through the windows I saw the tree trunks standing in solemn rows. The thunder pealed and echoed across the lake and among the distant islands, and the floodgates of heaven then opened and let out their rain in streaming torrents. The drops fell with a swift rushing sound upon the still waters of the lake, which leapt up to meet them, and pattered with the rattle of shot on the leaves of the maples and of the roof of the cottage. 
A moment later, and another flash, even more brilliant and of longer duration than the first, lit up the sky from zenith to horizon and bathed the room momentarily in dazzling whiteness. I could see the rain glistening on the leaves and branches outside. The wind rose suddenly, and in less than a minute the storm that had been gathering all day burst forth in its full fury. Above all the noisy voices of the elements, the slightest sounds in the room overhead made themselves heard, and in the few seconds of deep silence that followed the shriek of terror and pain, I was aware that the movements had commenced again. The men were leaving the room and approaching the top of the stairs. A short pause, and they began to descend. Behind them, tumbling from step to step, I could hear that trailing thing being dragged along. It had become ponderous. I awaited their approach with a degree of calmness, almost of apathy, which was only explicable on the ground that after a certain point, nature applies her own anaesthetic and a merciful condition of numbness supervenes. On they came, step by step, nearer and nearer, with the shuffling sound of the burden behind growing louder as they approached. They were already halfway down the stairs when I was galvanized afresh into a condition of terror by the consideration of a new and horrible possibility. It was the reflection that if another vivid flash of lightning were to come when the shadowy procession was in the room, perhaps when it was actually passing in front of me, I should see everything in detail and worse, be seen myself. I could only hold my breath and wait, wait while the minutes lengthened into hours and the procession made its slow progress round the room. The Indians had reached the foot of the staircase. The form of the huge leader loomed in the doorway of the passage, and the burden with an ominous thud had dropped from the last step to the floor. There was a moment's pause, while I saw the Indian turn and stoop to assist his companion. Then the procession moved forward again, entered the room close on my left, and began to move slowly round my side of the table. The leader was already beyond me, and his companion, dragging on the floor behind him the burden, whose confused outline I could dimly make out, was exactly in front of me when the cavalcade came to a dead halt. At that same moment, with the strange suddenness of thunderstorms, the splash of rain ceased altogether and the wind died away into the utter silence of the night. For the space of five seconds my heart seemed to stop beating, and then the worst came. A double flash of lightning lit up the room and its contents with merciless vividness. The huge Indian leader stood a few feet past me on my right. One leg was stretched forward in the act of taking a step. His immense shoulders were turned towards his companion, and in all their magnificent fierceness I saw the outline of his features. His gaze was directed upon the burden his companion was dragging along the floor, but his profile, with the big aquiline nose, high cheekbone, straight black hair and bold chin, burned itself in that brief instant into my brain, never again to fade. Dwarfish, compared with this gigantic figure, appeared the proportions of the other Indian who, 
within 12 inches of my face was stooping over the thing he was dragging in a position that lent to his person the additional horror of deformity. And the burden, lying upon a sweeping cedar branch which he held and dragged by a long stem, was the body of a white man. The scalp had been neatly lifted, and blood lay in a broad, disgusting smear upon the cheeks and forehead. Then, for the first time that night, the terror that had paralyzed my muscles and my will lifted its unholy spell from my soul. With a loud cry, I stretched out my arms to seize the big Indian by the throat, and grasping only air, tumbled forward unconscious upon the ground. I had recognized the body, and the face was my own. It was bright daylight when a man's voice recalled me to consciousness. I was lying where I had fallen, and the farmer was standing in the room with the loaves of bread in his hand. The horror of the night was still in my heart, and as the bluff settler helped me to my feet and picked up the rifle which had fallen with me, with many questions and expressions of condolence, I imagine my brief replies were neither self-explanatory nor even intelligible. That day, after a thorough and fruitless search of the house, I left the island and went over to spend my last ten days with the farmer. And when the time came for me to leave, the necessary reading had been accomplished and my nerves had completely recovered their balance. On the day of my departure, the farmer started early in his big boat with my belongings to row to the point, twelve miles distant, where a little steamer ran twice a week for the accommodation of hunters. Late in the afternoon, I went off in another direction in my canoe. Wishing to see the island once again, where I had been the victim of so strange an experience. In due course, I arrived there and made a tour of the island. I also made a search of the little house. And it was not without a curious sensation in my heart that I entered the little upstairs bedroom. There seemed nothing unusual. Just after I re-embarked, I saw a canoe gliding ahead of me around the curve of the island. A canoe was an unusual sight at this time of year, and this one seemed to have sprung from nowhere. Altering my course a little, I watched it disappear around the next projecting point of rock. It had high, curving bows, and there were two Indians in it. I lingered with some excitement to see if it would appear again round the other side of the island, and in less than five minutes it came into view. There were less than 200 yards between us, and the Indians, sitting on their haunches, were paddling swiftly in my direction. I never paddled faster in my life than I did in those next few minutes. When I turned to look again, the Indians had altered their course and were again circling the island. The sun was sinking behind the forests on the mainland, and the crimson-coloured clouds of sunset were reflected in the waters of the lake when I looked round for the last time and saw the big bark canoe and its two dusky occupants still going round the island. Then the shadows deepened rapidly. The lake grew black and the night wind blew its first breath in my face as I turned a corner 
and a projecting bluff of rock hid from my view both island and canoe. In the Seance Room presents A Haunted Island by Algernon Blackwood Read by Mark Carter Wall 